This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, looking this evening at verses uh, 1 through 15, actually, the, the chapter, not 1 through 10 as it's in the bulletin, but 1 through 15. Paul has been writing to the church in Corinth uh, about the, uh, the collection that he is overseeing to assist believers in Jerusalem who uh, in many cases there in the, in the uh, heart of Judaism were suffering for their faith in Christ, uh, that suffering uh, taking the form perhaps of loss of employment, loss of business, uh, exclusion from the trades, from the guilds, uh, and the suffering, of course, that accompanies that. And uh, Paul is very mindful of that need, and in the various churches he interacts with, and the areas that he interacts with, uh, encouraging them to participate. And so he wraps up here in chapter 9 uh, his, his words addressing this whole question of the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for uh, your word. 
and the inexpressible gift that it is to us. And we pray that as we study it this evening in this later hour of the day for clear minds and, uh, Father, for hearts ready to receive your word and to hear the truth of the scriptures, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As Paul is uh, continuing to write to Corinth about uh, this gift that he is taking up, he wants to be very careful in how this gift is handled. As we saw the last time we met on Sunday nights, Paul was uh, employing the services of three men, trustworthy men, men of integrity, writes about them in the end of chapter 8, one of whom is Titus uh, in verse 16, one of whom he refers to in verse 18 as the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching, and then in verse 22, the brother whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters famous brother and the tested brother. We don't know who they are, but Paul knows and he commends them in this way, as well as Titus, um, who uh, was not only, of course, known to Paul, but known to the church in Corinth. And so Paul was sending these men, uh, men of integrity, because Paul wants to do everything he can uh, to maintain integrity in the handling of this, uh, the, the money that is collected, as well as to show uh, his own disinterestedness in the money itself. Uh, trying to head off any uh, any questions about Paul's motivation. Paul wants to make it plain. This is not about him. In fact, he's sending others ahead to sort of prepare the way and arrange things in advance. Well, as we come to the passage before us, um, Paul is not only addressing a historical situation, but it seems that there are some, some principles that, that underlie this text that are helpful for us in thinking about biblical giving. Uh, and so we, that's what we want to look at tonight, three lessons that we can learn about, uh, about giving. First of all, biblical giving requires preparation. Look at verses 1 through 5. Paul says, now it is superfluous for me, it is unnecessary or even redundant, to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Paul says it's really unnecessary for me to write to you, encouraging you in this, because they had already indicated their readiness. In fact, Achaia is the area where Corinth is. Paul is saying your readiness, already expressed, was what inspired the believers in Macedonia, the ones about whom Paul writes in the beginning of chapter 8, to give. And remember, they gave... And not only gave, but gave sacrificially. They gave beyond their means. Paul was amazed uh, at their generosity, that even in their poverty, the believers in Macedonia gave. And what inspired them to that was the report of the readiness of the believers in Achaia, particularly Corinth, to give. And so with that background, you can understand why Paul is concerned that, uh, that the believers in, in Achaia be ready. Because as he says, it would be it would be very embarrassing. Uh, verse four, he sends the brothers on to uh, make sure that everything's arranged and in an order. Because in verse four, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, let alone you, because of our boasting about you. For you know, we would, because we're so confident of you. And think of it, if, uh, if if these three men went, it's a Macedonian representatives went with them to Corinth, and they got there. And these wealthy Corinthians seem to have maybe heard of the offering. Yes, they were aware of plans, but nothing was done. And you know, here these Macedonians had given sacrificially, and the Corinthians seemed to be completely ill-prepared to do anything. Uh, Paul says, we would be embarrassed, you would be embarrassed. That, that wouldn't be a good scene. 
So, verse 5, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. In other words, not a tax, not something uh, taken from you. Um, Paul was concerned here in this whole situation not to just leave things in a haphazard way. Not that he was necessarily orchestrating, he just wanted things to be in order. He wanted things to be prepared. He sent people on ahead to make sure everything was arranged, uh, one, for the actual collection of the gift, but also for the relationships among these believers. Uh, So Paul wanted to be sure to prepare, to facilitate, uh, so that uh, this, this gift could go off without a hitch. He sent the brothers to make arrangements so that there wouldn't be any, any surprises, any embarrassments, any difficulties. Well, taking that principle generally, uh, as, it, as Paul applies it here, it seems that it says a great deal about giving uh, not only from one group to another, but giving individually. Um, that in our own giving, uh, if Paul thought it necessary to arrange, work this out with the believers in Corinth, uh, that we learn that lesson uh, that giving does require preparation. It does require some forethought. Uh, in other words, you don't want to just be haphazard in giving, uh, to just leave things uh, fall out as they may. Um, particularly when it comes to our own giving, uh, there does need to be a plan. And of course, we talk about tithing. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, as far as how giving is done, are you intentional about that? Is, is that something that you build into your budget if you have a budget? And you should have a budget if you don't. Is that something that you, uh, that you set as a priority? Uh, or is that something left if there's money left over that you then give? Well, there's nothing left over, so we don't give. Well, that reflects not that there's not enough money. It reflects the priorities with which you allocated the money. Um, our own practice, for what it's worth, is, is, is upon being paid to immediately write the tithe check. Uh, that's no great uh, feat of masterful organization or coordination. It's simply not leaving giving to fall out as it may, not being haphazard, but having that as a purpose, as the priority, so that that's done. There may not be money for other things. But the money is, is, is planned and put toward that gift up front. So Paul indicates here that he's, he's very concerned about the preparation, that things go off properly, that things go off well. And biblical giving requires that. It does require some forethought, some purpose, some intentionality in our giving. It should be intentional, not haphazard. And so from these verses, that's something that we learn. That it does require forethought. It requires preparation. But there's another lesson that we find here in these verses. Biblical giving requires the right perspective. And this really is far more important. Uh, Certainly you want to be purposeful and intentional in giving. It's not something you just leave to happen if it will. Uh, But even that is something mechanical. It's something outward. But this second lesson that we learn from the next verses, 6 through 11, is that biblical giving requires the right perspective. Perspective, And let's look at what Paul's talking about here. How are we to think about giving? Well, in the first place, Paul says that we should think about it as a matter of investment. A matter of investment. Look at verse 6. Paul says the point is this. Maybe he's, maybe get the, he's gotten the feeling he's kind of been going on some about the arrangements. And that's important. But he says the point, what lies underneath all that, the big picture here is this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Uh, it could be that Paul is not only uh, teaching a principle, he may be quoting a proverb there, and not a biblically inspired proverb, but a, maybe a proverb of the day, you know, like an apple a day keeps the doctor away, that kind of thing, uh, a truism about life. Uh, that would apply financially. It could apply to other areas. If you if you do something and you don't put much effort into it, you don't get much out of it. If you do something, put a great deal of effort into it, you get much more out of it, that kind of thing. Well, here he is applying it to this whole matter of giving. And he says, someone who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And you can see the picture. You have a farmer, and he's got his seed. And he's going along in his field, and he's got his seed, and he loves that seed. He wants to keep that seed. So he wants to plant as little as possible. So he picks out one little seed, and he goes, and he pokes a hole, and he drops a little seed in and covers it up. And then he goes to the next little spot, and he takes out one little seed. He's, he's a little disturbed to see his his quantity of seed is diminishing. He pokes a little hole and he drops another little seed in. And so on. Well, he's sowing sparingly. He's very careful to keep a seed for himself. He doesn't want to lose it, so he just plants one seed in the hole and goes along. Well, as he waits for the, for the seed to germinate and the crop to come up, what's he going to get? Well, he's going to get a little plant for each of those little seeds that he put in the ground. Now, that's not the biblical image of sowing. You remember uh, Mark 4, the sower went out to sow his seed, and he had his bag of seed, and he wasn't being overly concerned about the amount of seed he had left. He took a handful, and he just scattered it. He flung it out to, to grow as it may. Now, yes, I know there's some seed you want to plant carefully, and you have to be more uh, meticulous about, but stay with the metaphor here. This is what Paul's saying. Someone who plants a few seeds gets a few crops. Someone who scatters a great deal of seed is going to have this, this lush and luxuriant growth come up, a much richer, much larger harvest. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And at first, the seed does seem lost. The sower has scattered that seed, and he looks in his bag. He finally reaches in it. There's nothing left. It's empty. And the seed is gone. He seems to have suffered a loss. He's out of seed. The seed is gone. He doesn't have anything for the seed. But in time, that seed grows and produces a crop. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But reap in what way? What is the return on the investment? Well, we would certainly have to say that there is a return for the world to come. In fact, Paul uh, teaches about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, toward the end of 1 Timothy, he says in verse 17, chapter 6, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may be able to take hold of that which is truly life. Sowing bountifully reaps an eternal harvest, an eternal reward. Your good works done, your sowing, and even in terms of money given, is not lost on, on God. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how even Jesus said even one who gives a cup of cold water to one of his servants because he's a disciple of Christ will not lose his reward. 
Well, those who are generous and giving, giving to the work of the kingdom, giving to the assistance of others, God doesn't lose track of that either. And Paul talks about those who, whom God has blessed with means here in the world, using those and so storing up treasure for themselves in heaven. So an eternal, heavenly return on the investment is very real. Now, it takes faith to see that. You won't see that in this life. You won't see that until you've died or until Christ returns, whichever comes first. So it takes faith to see that, but that is the promise of Scripture, and part of the return on the investment is that. But there's also a return on the investment in this world as well, more likely than not, in terms of sowing bountifully, in terms of people coming to faith in Christ through those ministries, through those people whom you support, uh, a temporal harvest of souls won to Christ, Uh, There may even be a return on your investment insofar as your generosity to others now results in their generosity perhaps to you at a time of need later. And Paul actually talked about that back in chapter 8. He says in verse 14, uh, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. Uh, There may be a time when those to whom you were generous are later generous to you. Of course, the classic illustration of that is uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, right? Where George Bailey has lent money and been a blessing to all these people, and in his time of need, they come back and and meet the need of the savings and loan. Well, an illustration, but nevertheless of of a reality. Uh, Not just a you scratch your back, uh, whoever's scratching someone's back, You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Not that kind of thing, but a genuine desire to help other people and the possibility that in the future they remember your generosity and later are able to to return good to you as well. So we are to look on biblical giving as a matter of investment. But we're also to look at it, and having the right perspective, as a matter of the heart. A matter of the heart. Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has made up his mind not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, we have a couple of illustrations of that in the scriptures that come to mind, one of which is is earlier in chapter 8, where Paul is talking about the generosity of the Macedonians out of their poverty, uh, out of their extreme poverty, verse 2, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own free will. Now, in terms of absolute dollar amount, it could not have been that much. They just didn't have that much to give. But they gave what they could and even beyond what they really reasonably could have given. In other words, sacrificially cutting into what they themselves needed reasonably to live on. And yet they gave. Uh, classic illustration, the, uh, the, the widow's mite, you know, where Jesus commends the widow who put her two pennies in uh, over those who gave large amounts of money. Because as Jesus says, they gave out of their wealth. They gave a large amount of money, but they have so much to begin with, they won't miss it. It's not going to affect the way they live in any way. But this widow came in and puts her two pennies in, and that's all she had. All she had to live on. And she was trusting God that he would supply her needs because she had just put everything she had into the temple offering box. And Jesus commends that. Why? Because it goes back to this principle that moves beyond the sheer externals, just the absolute dollar amount, to where the heart is. 
And that's what Paul is talking about here. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A matter of the heart. Now, uh, we do, I think, need to address at this point something we actually talked about Thursday night when the women's Bible study had its conclusion, um, and I was able to be there, be part of that. Uh, one of the questions that came up in their study of Deuteronomy we talked about, and specifically as it relates to this verse, is the whole question of tithing. Um, and tithing is somewhat complicated in the Old Testament. There were several different uh, gifts, offerings that were collected that went to, to support different things, but primarily the support of the priesthood, support of the temple, uh, and the, the religious uh, system, the sacrificial system that was there. And the question is, is the tithe still binding? And someone would say, well, you know, here each one just needs to give as he's decided to give, give proportionally, and that the tithe really does not apply. Well, a couple of ways of looking at that. There's never anything that revokes the tithe, although you could say, well, maybe that was part of Old Testament Israel and passed away with Old Testament Israel. But there are other things in the Old Testament that carry on into the new that are not revoked. Uh, most of the commandments are reiterated, the Ten Commandments reiterated in the New Testament, but not all of them. But we would still say that all ten apply. Uh, however, you really can't take these verses and use them to argue against the law of the tithe because these are referring to something very specific, to, re- to referring to this collection, this offering for the relief of brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Uh, he's not talking about giving generally, although certainly that applies generally. God's concerned about our hearts. But he's talking about a very specific collection made for a very specific purpose. Now, I do think that the tithe law still applies, and as we talked about Thursday night, um, there are those who disagree with that and say that's not the case, uh, and I have no problem with that, as I've said, as long as they are giving 10% of their income or more. Because if they're giving less than 10%, they have a vested interest in a particular interpretation of Scripture. They are financially motivated to say the tithe law no longer applies because they're giving less than that. But uh, how can we who live in the light of the gospel, the light of the new covenant, give less than those who lived under the shadows of the old covenant. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul on a tape talking about tithing. He said, really, tithing is the easiest part of Christian obedience. You take your income, calculate 10%. You have trouble with that. See, uh, see Matthew Chandler, and he'll be happy to use his accounting skill to help you calculate 10% of your income, or you could just move the decimal over appropriately. And then you write a check for that amount. It's easy. There's nothing hard about tithing. Say, well, I don't have enough money to tithe. Uh, well, maybe that's a matter of priority. Maybe it's a matter of you know, what you do commit your money to. Um, I, remember, I remember the old joke of the man who came to the preacher and said, you know, I used to tithe, but I make so much money now that I really can't tithe anymore. And the preacher said, well, let's pray about that. You know, Lord, reduce this man's income to where he can tithe again. Um, but tithing is, is, you know, I don't want to get into the debate of gross income or, or net income. Uh, I do I tithe on gross because I think God should get his before the government gets its. Uh, but I don't want to be uh, legalistic about that. But again, ultimately, it comes down to the heart. I mean, write a tithe check out and give it complaining and grudgingly. Uh, you're not pleasing God. I mean, in an outward and letter of the law way, you're being obedient. But that's not really the point. Uh, 
giving, biblical giving, has, has the right perspective of the heart that gives cheerfully, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God loves a heart that gives, that loves to give. And not just in terms of money, but that gives of itself. And so biblical giving requires the right perspective, which requires seeing it as a matter of investment, seeing it as a matter of the heart, but also seeing it as a matter of provision. Look at verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God gives you what you need to be generous. Or as some have said, you can't outgive God. God will supply what you need to be generous. But sometimes he supplies that after you started being generous. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, as it's written, he's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. A quote from Psalm 112. Then he quotes from Isaiah 55, verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Paul is saying God will supply your needs not to feed your family, not to clothe your family. He'll supply your need to give. Did you catch that? He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And so we need to see biblical giving as a matter of provision, God's provision for us, that God will provide for us to enable us to give. God won't let you give in such a way that he does not provide what you need to be a generous and giving person. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So biblical giving requires preparation. We have to be intentional about it. We have to purpose in our hearts that we're going to do this, and we're going to do this in a systematic and organized way, not just writing a check as we somehow find we have some leftover money. It also involves having the right perspective, which means seeing it as an investment, seeing it as a matter of the heart. It's not just an outward thing, but it reflects our spiritual condition and our heart before God. And seeing it as a matter of God's provision. God provides for us to be able to give. He multiplies the seed for sowing. But then the third thing that Paul talks about here is that biblical giving results in praise to God. Look at verse 11 again. The second part of the verse is really kind of where it divides here. Paul says in verse 11, You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, notice, notice what he says. It results in thanksgiving for the gift itself. Uh, verse 11 and 12, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. In other words, this gift is... Uh, meeting their needs, but it's also causing them to give thanks to God. It is increasing the gratitude to God. In other words, God is being worshipped more because of your gift, because of the, the, thanks, the thankfulness of those who receive the gift. Not only does the gift meet their need, but it produces in them thanksgiving to God. So it's glorifying God. It's, it's, it's resulting in more thanks to God. It's also resulting in praise to God insofar as thanksgiving, uh, as thanksgiving arises to God for the work of God and those who gave the money. So the recipients of it give thanks to God but they also for the money, but they also thank God for his work in the hearts of those who gave. Look at verse 13 and 14. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. Submission to what? Submission to God. God's call to give. 
flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Now, thanksgiving for the work of God and those who gave. The work in what way? Well, submission to the gospel. Because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel. Thanksgiving that they did submit to the gospel. That just as Christ gave himself to us, they gave of themselves and gave of their, their wealth. Uh, for God bringing them to a confession of the gospel. Uh, as he mentions also there in verse 13, from your confession of the gospel, uh, from their generosity in the gospel, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, but also for their fellowship in the gospel. Look at verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Uh, the people receiving this gift are, mo- are motivated to thank God for it, but also to thank God for his work in another part of his church, in those who have given so generously. Their submission to the gospel, their, uh, their confession of the gospel, their obedience, uh, their generosity as a result, but also that strengthens the fellowship that they have. And they're thanking God for that too. They long for you. Uh, we would say their hearts go out to them. Uh, they want to meet them. They want to know them. These brothers and sisters who have been so generous to people they've never met. And they pray for you. Uh, those receiving this gift, praying for those who have given the gift. Uh, praying for their well-being. Praying for the well-being of their churches. You know, it's interesting. We think of believers living in difficult places. Places where there's persecution. Places where there's economic hardship whether just generally or maybe because of the gospel. You know, we pray for them. We pray for the persecuted church. But you know that people in persecuted churches pray for you? And, and they see you in some ways in greater danger than themselves because they, they, they recognize the danger of wealth. They recognize the, uh, the, the danger of comfort and ease and uh, the tendency that that produces to... Uh, to a certain softness, uh, to be lured away from a devotion to Christ, that those who really put everything on the line just to meet together each week uh, don't have. They don't experience that. There's a commitment to Christ that they've made that's unquestioned, and there's no going back. And they recognize that to meet together, to own a Bible, might result in their being arrested and imprisoned or beaten, possibly even killed. And so once you've made that decision... You've crossed that line. Uh, there's a commitment there where there's no going back. But they recognize that for those who live in freedom, those who live in wealth, those who live in comfort, that those things do have a, uh, a softening effect and are a very tempting siren call. And so people in persecuted churches pray for us, for the dangers that we face, even as we pray for them with the dangers they face. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, they long for you and they pray for you. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And so biblical giving results in praise to God. Uh, praise uh, and thanksgiving among those who receive the, 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 uh, the generosity for the gift itself, of course. But also thanksgiving to God uh, for what he's doing in that and what he's done in the work of those who give. But then Paul ends in verse 15 with this, uh, this thanksgiving himself to God. But thanks be to God, he says, for his inexpressible gift. Uh, 
the word there in verse 15 is, is an unusual word. It's the first time it occurs not only in the New Testament, but in any Greek literature at all. It's a word Paul made up to, to describe the nature of God's gift. And what is that gift? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's Christ. The gift of Christ. Because you see, for Paul, ultimately, this isn't about money. It's about the gospel. It's about Christ. It's about the heart. Did you catch that? Even back in, uh, in, in verse 13, the, the Corinthians' generosity is not a matter just of generosity. It's a matter of grace because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. It's part of being a Christian. And then we go back to uh, chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, to be a Christian is by, is by definition to be a generous person. Generous financially, generous in all kinds of ways. There's no such thing as a miserly Christian, as a contradiction in terms. We serve a Savior who gave himself, though he was rich, became poor for our sake, so that we might be made wealthy. How can we turn around and deny the very nature of the gospel itself by our stinginess, by our miserliness? It cannot be. And that's why Paul draws all this back and relates this back to Christ, relates this back to gospel, to the gospel and its work in us. Than to who we are in Christ. And that's why this isn't a passage where Paul's writing where it's just a call to dig deep, you know, give till it hurts. But rather, this passage is a call to come to Christ in repentance and faith and to imitate his self-giving, his giving of himself out of concern for and regard for others who are able to benefit from his generosity. You see, it's not about legalism, but rather it's about the overflow of God's grace in us, a grace that overflows from us to others in all kinds of ways, and certainly monetarily should be one of those. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a most generous and giving Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your gift of yourself, uh, that we might be wealthy, that we might have the treasure of the gospel, that we might be yours and belong to you, and be with you forever. Father, we pray that you would make us a generous and giving people. We pray that you'd make us a generous and giving church, because we serve a generous and giving Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.